Okay, I'd like to turn to Isaiah chapter 6. <clears throat> Isaiah chapter 6. Let's take our reading from the first verse. Isaiah 6, verse 1. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Above it stood seraphim. Each one had six wings. With twain he covered his face, with twain he covered his feet, and with twain he did fly. And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door moved at the voice of him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. That will be sufficient for our reading and what I intend to look at this morning. I suppose if I had to detail what is upon my mind this morning, it is a consideration of the millennial kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we have about half an hour and in half an hour, we are not going to even scratch the surface of what could be brought out. And so we will just see how far we get, what details we look at, and we will leave it there as of the Lord. <laughs> Every preacher always goes home and thinks what he could have said and what he should have said and what he didn't say. But we'll take what is given to us and hopefully we'll go away with something. When we come to the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, it's good for us to understand that that is in two stages. Often we refer to the rapture and the second coming. Well, the rapture is the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is just the first stage of the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And first he will come to the air, and that will be to take away his bride. And I do believe at that time, and I think I could verify that from Scripture, that he will come exclusively for his bride. And he will take his bride away. And as Genesis chapter 24 would teach us in type, when, uh, when Isaac took Rebekah alone into the tent, he will come exclusively for his bride and he will take us away. And we shall go then, of course, to the judgment seat of Christ. And then beyond that, into the very uh, presence of God the Father. And then we shall be wed, of course, to our Lord Jesus Christ before we come out of heaven again with him in that coming day. What a day it will be when we come back with him to display uh, his glory. What a privilege we have. And Paul, when he writes to the Colossians in chapter 3, he speaks of this great moment and he says, When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then we shall appear with him in glory. What a great hope 
we have. But we have to make a distinction between the rapture and the, and the second stage of the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, and that will be when Christ comes back to planet Earth and his feet touch down on the Mount of Olives again. What a moment it will be for planet Earth, an Earth which rejected the Son of God and gave him a cross, shall receive him back again. He shall come back to planet Earth. Zechariah teaches us that he shall place his feet upon the Mount of Olives and then he shall go towards Jerusalem. What a day it will be. There shall be cataclysmic changes upon planet Earth at that time and the creation itself, the landscape shall be changed. The creation shall be changed and the curse shall be lifted. What a hope. And it will be at the manifestation of the sons of God. And as we have been taught and as we can see from Romans chapter 8, that this whole creation presently groans and is waiting for the manifestation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes. But the writer, Paul the Apostle to the Romans, he teaches us, it's waiting for the manifestation of the sons of God. That's you and I. And it will be in that day when we are revealed with our Lord Jesus Christ that the curse will be lifted and this creation will be changed again and the earth shall flourish in that millennial day. Now I believe what is before us, uh, whether it's primarily or whether we just take an application, what is before us on the page on the verses that we've read in Isaiah 66 is the millennial kingdom. I think we would be able to see that clearly. The distinction between the uh, millennia, between the rapture and the uh, and the second stage of the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Good, you must have left-handed preachers here. I like that because usually the glass is over here, but I'm left-handed. It's distinct, and we must understand that from the scriptures. I'll just point out just a few things to you in type and in shadow, and I hope that we can clarify from the scriptures the distinction between the first and second stage of the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. You remember in the Old Testament it would teach us that Enoch was raptured away, but he was raptured away not mid-flood, not post-flood, but he was raptured away prior to the flood. And this would teach us, of course, in type, of the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ for the church and we will be taken away. We will be taken away before a global judgment comes upon planet earth. And so we see that of course in type and in shadow and in illust illustrative detail with uh, Enoch. He's taken away, he's raptured away, uh, he's taken away from this scene of time and then God deals with this earth. And then, of course, you can see that Noah and those in the ark are a picture of a remnant which pass through the waters of judgment and they come out the other side and they experience rest and repopulation of a planet. That's exactly what's going to take place when we, the church, Enoch, of course, the picture, we, the church, are taken away prior to the flood ever starting, prior to that global judgment taking place. And then, of course, there will be a remnant of Israel that are taken safely in that ark, which is Christ, through those tribulation waters of judgment, and they shall come out the other side, and they shall be responsible to repopulate the earth. Well, 
Not only were there eight souls in the ark, I think sometimes we forget that there were animals in the ark too. And I think you would have to agree with me this afternoon that the animals are a picture of Gentiles that will be saved in tribulation days. You may scratch your head and think, how could that be possible? Could we find that verified in scripture for us? I think we could, because the animals, there are really just four classes of animals that went into the ark. The Bible teaches us that there were creeping things, there were fowls of the air, there were the cattle, the four-footed beasts, and there were the wild beasts. That's the four classes of animals that are registered for us in Genesis chapter 7 that went into the ark. Now when you come to the book of the Acts and there is a man named Peter in chapter 10 and there is another man named Cornelius, the first Gentile ever to be saved and Peter's perplexed because he can't understand that Gentiles should be saved. Interesting brothers and sisters, let me just put this in as an aside. Interesting how God does this through the ages to include all of humanity. Do you remember in the beginning in Genesis chapter 2, upon the creation of man, the gospel, let's just speak of it as the gospel, the gospel went out to entire humanity. Whether it was Cain, whether it was Abel, whether it was Adam, whether it was Seth, whoever came from the loins of Abraham, available to them was the salvation of God by faith. Then when you get to chapter 12 of the book of Genesis, God kind of narrows this down to a family and he brings salvation to an individual household, the, uh, the, uh, to Abraham. And then he seems to deal with this individual household through the rest of the book of Genesis on into Exodus. It goes out into this nation. And this nation, of course, is the primary people that God is dealing with. We know he's still reaching the earth. But what he's done, he started with the human race. And he's now come to the Hebrew race. And he's dealing with the Hebrew race. When you get to the book of the Acts, this thrilled my soul when I saw it. God again, through the mouth of the Lord Jesus Christ, he says, Go to Jerusalem, the Hebrews. Go to Judea. Go to Samaria, the half-Hebrews. And go to the uttermost parts of the earth. And as God started like this, and went down like that, and came like that, and ended up like that. And all of humanity is reached through all of the ages by the all-seeing eye of God. Let none ever teach you that God has a favoured certain people whom he is going to save and the others don't have a chance. No. The gospel of God is to all humanity throughout all ages. And when you come to the Gentiles, Cornelius is the first Gentile recorded for us as being saved, although I often wondered about this, the Ethiopian eunuch as he went back to Ethiopia, he would have preached the gospel, right? So, but the first recorded Gentile for us is Cornelius in Acts chapter 10. And Peter has to be conditioned by God. He has to understand that Gentiles are now being included into the salvation of God. So God teaches him a lesson. How? With a sheet. And three times he lets a sheet down. And he's going to draw for, pic for Peter a picture of Gentiles. What God hath cleansed, call no man common. What does God use? The very same four creatures that went into the ark. Wild beasts. Four-footed beasts. Creeping things. Fowls of the air. And God says... Not me. God says, 
That's a picture of Gentiles. Is there only going to be a remnant of Israel saved through tribulation days? No. When you come to Revelation chapter 7, it tells us that there's going to be a, there's going to be a multitude that cannot be numbered from Gentile nations that are saved through tribulation days. And so when I see the ark, and I see an unnumbered multitude of animals, and a little numbered remnant, I just take it that Israel is pictured in, Adam, in Noah and his family. And the Gentiles that shall be saved in tribulation days are pictured in the animals. What a God we have. But when was Enoch raptured? It was prior to the flood. In fact, it was about 70 years before uh, Noah was born, if my sums are correct. Incredible. Well, when you come to further on in the book of Genesis, of course, you'll find not only Enoch and Noah, you'll find Lot. And Lot, again, is a picture of a Christian, a Christian that's turned the wrong direction. Thank God that we can never lose our salvation. And though John in his epistles would teach us what we look for as signs for Christians, interesting, he never says a date in the front of a Bible. He says the evidence will be before you. But that aside, it is possible for Christians to turn away. The whole of the New Testament would not need it to have been written if, if it wasn't possible for Christians to, be to, to turn away. That's why we have the instruction in the epistles to continue on this pathway. Because it is possible for us to turn. And in the flesh, it would be natural for us to turn away. And so God in his wisdom gives us the New Testament. I like, as I move through the New Testament, you see, of course, the gospel records. Gospel records is the personification of the personification of the gospel on planet Earth in the person of God's Son. The gospel arrived. Good news in the person of God's Son. Then you move to the book of the Acts and it's the expansion of the gospel. And then you move to the book of the Romans and it's the exposition of the gospel. And you move to the epistles and it's now the evidence of the gospel in the life of a believer. And finally you come to the revelation, it's the end of the gospel. Because there's coming a day when the gospel will never need to be preached again. And the doors will be closed. God's salvation will be concluded. And eternity shall commence. Never again will we witness to another soul. This is the time. So we see that Lot, a picture of a backslidden Christian... He was saved not mid nor post fire upon the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. He was saved prior to. And in fact, the angels told him, we cannot do anything until you're out. And so it's a clear picture for us of the rapture of the church. And the New Testament speaks of Lot as being constituted as righteous. A picture of what we are in our standing. So Lot... Enoch, Joseph, a picture of a man who, who foreshadows Christ, standing and ministering to the needs of those people in the midst of a famine. Again, a great picture of tribulation days, undoubtedly. Where was Asenath, Joseph's bride, safe in the palace? 
And there are a multitude of Old Testament pictures for us which clearly distinguish the difference between the two stages of the coming of Christ. One for his church to take her out before, not mid, and not post, pre-tribulation rapture. Thank God that it's right through the scriptures. Again, could I tell you something else which just causes me to marvel. When you come to Genesis chapter 21, in Genesis chapter 21 you'll find a unique conception. That's the conception of Isaac. A unique conception. It prefigures for us the unique conception of the Lord Jesus Christ. For we know that Isaac speaks of Christ. Abraham speaks of God the Father. And in Genesis chapter 21, you'll find divine conception. When you come to Genesis chapter 22, of course, there is undoubtedly for us a picture of Calvary's cross, Mount Moriah. And you see father and son. And they're going out to that place. And you get to verse 4 of chapter 22. And you'll find that Abraham says, he says to his, he says to his two servants with him, he says, remain here with the ass. I and the lad will go yonder and worship and come again to you. Verse 4. Well, if you look at verse 19 of the same chapter, you'll find this. And Abraham returned to his young man. Well, I thought you said in verse 4, I and the lad will go yonder and worship and we will come again to you. Well, where's Isaac? And he's lifted off the page. He's edited out by the Holy Spirit. And you go through the rest of chapter 22 and Isaac's nowhere to be found. And you come all the way through chapter 23 and Isaac's not there. And I thought he would have been because chapter 23 is the death of Sarah, his mother. And I thought Isaac, the son, would have been at the funeral and would have been mourning. And no, it's not mentioned. And Isaac's not there in chapter 23. And you get into chapter 24 and you start reading. And Isaac's not there and he's not there and he's not there. And you get to about verse 61, 62, 63, 64. And Isaac appears. And he's coming out. What's he coming out for? He's coming out to meet his bride, Rebecca. And he takes his bride into his mother's tent. And he loved her there. And it's only after he takes her into his mother's tent that Abraham, chapter 25, remarries. Can you see the picture? The divine conception, Calvary, Isaac, Christ, disappearing. The death of Sarah, Israel set aside. Isaac reappearing to claim the bride. Only after that, Abraham remarrying Keturah and the very sons of Keturah we could read in the Old Testament millennial chapters are the ones that will come up in that millennial day. Tremendous pictures for us. Brothers and sisters, this is so clear. This is so distinct. There is, a, there is a clear biblical distinction in the two stages of the coming of Christ. He will come for us, his bride, the morning star. And as the morning sun in Malachi chapter 3, he shall rise with healing in his wings. And he shall come back for the nation of Israel. Thank God they're not finished.
Thank God we believe in dispensational truth. And we can see clearly God's dealings with uh, humanity through the ages. And so we see these things clearly upon the page of Scripture. Now, I want to just spend, let's, we've got 10 minutes and we're going to look at this very briefly. And maybe we'll come back another day and look at it in some detail. When you come to Isaiah chapter 6, why do I say that I feel that we can ha see this as a millennial chapter? Well, it's the call of Isaiah the prophet to service. We recognize and we often concentrate on the fact that he said, woe is me. Now what Isaiah needed before he would come to that great conclusion, of course, is a vision. And he needed a vision of God, particularly the Lord Jesus Christ in all his glory. And having received that vision of the heavenly throne sitter, he then understands what he is. But if he's ever going to serve God in any capacity, and if you brothers and sisters, and if I am ever going to serve God in any capacity, which is for his glory, which is for his honor, and which will find reward in a coming day, it will have to be that first I receive a vision of the throne setter. It will first be that I have to understand something of his holiness. His greatness, His majesty, His glory. And all these things are encapsulated for us in the first four verses of Isaiah chapter 6. And we see in these four verses, Isaiah receives this vision. But what do I say, brothers and sisters, not only a great encapsulating vision of the heavenly throne sitter. This is the throne sitter in the millennium. This is the throne sitter when the whole earth is full of His glory. This is the throne sitter when he shall come and dwell in his millennial temple. Why did Isaiah need that? Well, I suggest, brothers and sisters, if we're going to serve God faithfully, what would be helpful to us is get a vision of the future. Get a vision of what's going to happen in the future. And this little present solitude will seem not much. We will put our heads to the wheel. We will put our hands to the work. We will be motivated to walk on if we can get a vision not only of the heavenly throne setter of what's going to be in a, in a future age in the millennium. Notice the timing of this that makes me understand, causes me to understand that this must be millennial in its application at least. It's upon the death of King Uzziah. Now you remember King Uzziah of course. King Uzziah was a man who attempted to enter into the very temple of God and put his hand to a service that didn't pertain to him. If you go back to Chronicles chapter 26, you'll read there in 1 Chronicles 26 how that King Uzziah, he put his hand to a ministry that wasn't for him. He was the king. And he went into the temple. And in the temple, he attempted to offer incense. Now, this, of course, was not just an off-the-cuff thing. This was planned. This was meticulously thought out by this man. And he went in with the actual censer in his hand. And he went in, we don't need you priests. I can do this. 
And he went in to offer incense and immediately engaged in that which did not pertain to him. There's only one king priest. After the order of Melchizedek, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall come forth and be displayed in that millennial kingdom, putting his hand to a work that was not his, God smote him with leprosy. And it wasn't until he was removed that Isaiah gets this vision. When is the Lord Jesus going to come? It's only upon the removal of a man who sets himself up in the temple as God to be worshipped, the man of sin. And as I meditated upon these verses, I thought, look at this beautiful picture. Look at what it's drawing for us. And it's upon the removal of the man of sin who's actually gone into the temple now and sitting in the temple. He is desiring to be worshipped as God. And so, says the writer to the Thessalonians, he opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped and sitteth in the temple as God to be worshipped as God and it's only upon the removal of this man isn't it tragic brothers and sisters the first occupant of the lake of fire this man he's taken alive and cast into the lake of fire and a lake of fire which was prepared for the devil and his angels The first person to make entrance to that place is this individual. But he's removed and he's taken out of the way. And then we can get a full vision of the king. The rightful king. The king priest. I notice this, brothers and sisters, when you come to uh, Exodus chapter 41 at the commencement of the building of the tabernacle. It tells us there that when the glory of the Lord filled the place, Moses could not enter in. You remember when you come to 1 Kings chapter 8, now the building of the temple? And it tells us when the glory of the Lord filled the place, the priests could not enter in. What is this for us, brothers and sisters, that when the glory of the Lord filled the abiding place of God on planet earth, a prophet could not enter in, Moses. Priests could not enter in to the temple but into this temple comes one who with his own glorious right fills the place prophet priest and king and he sits upon the throne in this temple and he's going to be ministered unto and there's going to be seraphim that stand and they wait to do his bidding but i notice this it's a theocracy on planet earth now in a coming day, in Isaiah chapter 6, it is unveiled for us that what will take place in the millennial kingdom shall be a theocracy. You see, you and I in this present day, we live in a democracy. Some quarters of this world, they live under dicta dictatorial rule. They have no say in the matter. They're, they're just the subjects of a dictator. And they are oppressed. And they are suppressed. And they can do nothing about it. Most of them, if not all of them, would love to rid themselves from the bondage of a dictator. But when the Lord Jesus comes, it shall not be a democracy. It shall not be the rights of the people. It shall not be the vote of the people of planet Earth that bring him in. No, 
God has already stamped in the pages of the Bible that Christ shall sit upon the throne of planet earth and shall rule and have dominion from sea to sea and from the rivers to the end of the earth. It's already set in heaven forever, O Lord. Thy word is settled in heaven. And so we see, and that would be one reason why I wouldn't vote, because my, my man is in already. And I might vote against the will of God. But he's coming. It's promised. He's there. He just has to take the place. And he's not going to come as a dictator. Because every subject of his kingdom will love him being there. Every subject of his kingdom is there because of voluntary obedience. Every person that comes out to go into the millennium will be there as a believer by personal choice. We're not robots. We were not programmed to believe. We're a fallen creature. Did it take the workings of the Holy Spirit that we might ever hear the gospel? Did it take the workings of the Holy Spirit that we might ever be convicted of our sin? Absolutely. Without it, we would have no hope. But brothers and sisters, God did not program us. Otherwise, that would be God telling himself he loves himself. And that would be God telling himself that he believes in himself. No. He wanted voluntary action on the part of humanity. And he got that. And he gets that. And that's why the gospel goes out. And you're appealed to. And there we find that there is a response in the life of an individual. You remember even the Apostle Paul on the road to Damascus. That light. Do you remember what he said when he was giving his testimony in Acts chapter 26? He said, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. Hmm. So you could have been Paul? Oh yes. Because many times he kicked against the pricks. Many times when the Lord prodded him, he said, no. But this time, he surrendered. And he was not disobedient. And he was saved. Marvelous. Did God know all that lay before? Absolutely. Did God have a plan for that man's life? Absolutely. And so we see, in that coming day, it will be only voluntary subjects in the kingdom. What a day it will be. Won't you ever be thankful that you trusted Christ? Won't you ever be thankful that we heard the gospel? Just the goodness of God. And he'll receive all the credit. And we'll bow at his feet. And we'll love him. Because he first loved us. It's a theocracy on planet earth. There is a veiling of angelic ministry. We saw that 
They veiled their faces, they veiled their feet, and they flew. And the verbs that are used are that they continuously veiled their face and continuously veiled their feet. And they recognized they're in the presence of a heavenly throne sitter. This is not just a man of earth. This is the triune God upon the throne. Holy, holy, holy. And it was referenced in worship this morning, which turned my mind to these verses. The very beginning of our Bible opens. In the beginning, Elohim created the heavens and the earth. And you know that Elohim is that plural noun with the singular verb. The plural noun encapsulating for our understanding that there's a plurality of persons here and they are singular in their action. And all that they do is singular. So they said, let us make man in our image. There's a plurality of persons and they are singular in their divine action. And then when you come, let us make man in our image. What they accomplished was in complete unity, one with another. And so we find this here three times. Holy, holy, holy. Three times this is referenced for us in the scriptures. And I think it would speak to our souls of the Godhead, the Trinity, the divine truth, that God is three persons. Three distinct persons, Father, Spirit, and Son. All equal. All unified. All eternal. All uncreated. Ever being. Ever will be. Jehovah of hosts. You know it's reference in John 12. Of course you know these things. And it's attributed to as being the Lord Jesus Christ. But when you come to Acts chapter 28, the Apostle Paul says this is the Holy Spirit. Because he says, well, says the Holy Spirit by Isaiah the prophet. Hearing they shall hear and not. Seeing they shall see and not. And so Paul the Apostle says this is the Holy Spirit. And John the Apostle says this is the Lord Jesus Christ. And Isaiah the prophet says this is Jehovah. It's none less than the triune God. No wonder we come to a day, brothers and sisters, when the kingdom shall be delivered up to the Father. All rule is set down. Every enemy is destroyed. The last enemy, which is death. And God, the triune God, shall be all in all. So he says here, there is a theocracy. There is a truth that angelic ministry is veiled. In that day, brothers and sisters, we shall judge angels. Their ministry will be veiled. Their ministry is prominent at the moment. In that day, our ministry shall be prominent. And their ministry shall be veiled. Brothers and sisters, in that day, the Trinity shall be known on planet Earth. You'll have no one knocking on your door trying to deny this truth. Thank God for that. And in that coming day, listen, the whole earth shall be full of his glory. As the waters cover the sea, so shall the knowledge of the glory of God cover the face of the earth, says Habakkuk the prophet. The knowledge of Jehovah, you'll not have to tell your neighbor. No, all men shall know what a day it will be when the glory of the Lord covers the earth. 
That's what we have to look forward to. And so Isaiah was given this vision. Then he understood something of himself. And then he heard the call. Go and serve me. I think we need the same today. May the Lord help us to catch a vision of the glorious throne sitter. And may it motivate us, not only to service, but to see what we are in his sight. And we'll serve him humbly and devotedly until he comes.